Hey, 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 guys, it is Allison from Allison Answers and Logger Counseling Services. Today is a extremely special day. And you guys all know what I do on this podcast. And I'm always explaining how special my guests are because I only choose special guests. And this particular guest is different for me, very, very different. And a lot of what I'm going to how I'm going to introduce her will be me reading things because it's emotional for me to be discussing what we're about to discuss. So I am going to welcome my guest and explain to you that I'm both thrilled and afraid to welcome her. You know, she's radiant and she's powerful and she's an incredible guest that I know for sure. Like I am honored because I know that she will transform your life. I know that she's going to change the way you see pain. She's going to change the way you interact with your own pain and the pain of others. And she's going to open up your perspective on your community and on our world. And one of the the reasons that I feel so so honored to have her here is because she's special to me personally. And she's personally special to me because I believe that she is on this podcast (laughs) for me. And I really believe that. I believe that because Kayla, and I'm going to introduce her formally in a moment, just everybody sit back and listen. She's a woman who shares in an unimaginable pain that, you know, we share a pain together of the tragic loss of our husbands to suicide. And we also share in a mission of mine professionally and personally, and for Kayla, both personally and professionally, we share in a mission. She's all the way out there on the other end of our country on the uh, West Coast, and I'm on the East Coast, but we share this beautiful desire to awaken the world to this, this hidden shame that comes along with suicide and the aftermath and the way that our society has learned to hide from it, probably because we're afraid of it. So we both want to, we're joining together today and I'm sure, I mean, I believe that Kayla is just kind and wants to make sure that Another sister who's going through something like this is, you know, she writes at the end of her emails in this together. And uh, that's what she embodies, I think, as a human being. She's done great things. But besides that, you know, I just I just want to proclaim her heart as a human being. I want to just give a little bit of a background about her, but I want to tell you and really let you see preemptively and ask you to sit back, take notes. And I I ask that you take in her words, even if they don't exactly apply to you. There is no one on this earth who does not experience pain. And by Kayla and where she has sat in life and where I am, we both were people who you would think would be able to stop something like suicide. And neither of us did. You know, 
We just didn't know. We didn't know. So what we want to share with you is ways to not only get through it if it has happened to you, but also be able to know what to do if you're faced with any kind of difficult mental illness in your family or even in your society, if you see someone. I just want to throw out three bedrock principles to consider as we're going through this. One is, is that and this is this is the foundation probably of this podcast and my life is that pain is transformative that if we allow it to be that it it has the power to transform our our life and if you know i see us as being sculpted and the knife you know of the of the the chisel of the sculptor you know uh, as a person of faith i see it as god is just allowing you know it, when we resist the pain, we resist the transformation. So it chisels away at the parts of us that are hiding our beauty. And I think that it's been an incredible honor to go through this pain. Didn't want to, and I wouldn't choose it again. But and so that's one, that pain is transformative, that a bedrock principle that if everybody here adopts this as a worldview, that there is always a solution and that there is always hope and never quit before the miracle happens. And the third thing is that the truth is good enough and that all judgment is fear. So now I'm going to give a more, I guess, what would we call it? A more formal introduction. Uh, In August of 2018, Kayla lost her husband, Andrew, who is a pastor of Inland Hills Church in Chino, California, to suicide. In the wake of the tragedy, she embarked on a brave journey to better understand his harrowing battle with mental illness and ultimately to overcome the stigma of suicide. With a clear-eyed acknowledgement of how misguided and misinformed she was about mental illness, Kayla, could you pronounce your last name, please? Steckline. Steckline. Didn't want to butcher it. Kayla Steckline shares her story in hopes that anyone walking through this wilderness of mental illness will better be equipped for the journey and will learn to put their hope in Jesus through it all. She's written the book and I've listened to it. I listened to her voice, which I like to do, uh, Fear Gone Wild. And what a beautiful description of mental illness for the person and for the people close to it. It is fear gone wild. And I just ask that you be prepared for your life to be changed now. So Kayla, welcome. Welcome to this show. And I thank you so much for being here. I'd love for you to say anything about where you are now. And if you could also fear gone wild, that word, fear gone wild. I would love it if you could explain the reason for that title. And also you have written another book that's soon to come out and we're going to give you all that information at the end, but it's rebuilding beautiful. Is that what it is? Rebuilding beautiful. Could you explain those two titles to us? Yeah. 
Yeah. So for me right now, it's been almost four years since Andrew passed away. Um, it'll be four years in August. And we recently moved to the beach. So I'm completely on the other side of the coast from you. We're in South Orange County in California. And I have three little boys. Um, my oldest son, Smith, is nine years old. My middle son, Jethro, we call him Jet, <laughs> is seven years old. And my youngest son, Brave, is six. So my life is full. I feel like I live at the skate park and the beach and the baseball field. And the days fly by super fast. And so on the little pockets of time I have while they're at school and after they go to sleep, um, I've been writing and speaking and just really um, have been so honored. It's been such a, such a great honor of my life to be able to share my story and to help others in a small way. Um, and I'm just so grateful that God's done what he has done in the last four years. And so Fear Gone Wild, um, that title came from a Google search. <laughs> my husband, the main, the main symptom that he had at the very beginning of when his mental health journey started, his mental illness journey started, um, was panic attacks. And he had these awful debilitating panic attacks about four or five times a week. And they would take over his entire body. It would mostly happen when he tried to go to sleep and he would be gone. I wouldn't be able to reach him. He would become a completely different person, completely overtaken by fear. And so as I was doing research for the book, I found this definition of panic attacks and the definition was fear gone wild. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's what happened. Um, fear just spread like wildfire through my husband's body, through my husband's mind, fear and confusion um, completely took over. And so I, I really truly believe that. And we were doing everything we knew to do to help him combat that fear and to do the right things. I mean, he was taking medication. He was seeing a psychiatrist. We were going to the therapist. He was off taking time off work. I mean, you name it, we tried it. We were doing everything we knew to do to get him better. Yet that fear still had such a strong grip on him. So I feel like it was so fitting for the title of the book. And then this next book, Rebuilding Beautiful, um, that title was birthed out of a conversation with one of my friends. I was sitting on my front porch at my last house, and it was about a year and a half after Andrew passed away. And I was talking on the phone with her, and I was crying, and I was venting, and I was explaining how I had this beautiful life. I mean, I had everything I could have ever asked for and more. I had the handsome husband. He was so handsome. He was so successful. I had the dream mom car, big, brand new, suburban. We were living in our dream home. We had just moved into a beautiful home. We were on a half acre of land, this 4,000 square foot home. I mean, amazing, beautiful, beautiful home. All these tall, beautiful eucalyptus trees. I mean, it was a dream home, dream guy, dream home, dream life, three beautiful boys. And it was, it felt like that whole entire life died with my husband. And I was handed this brand new life as a single mom and a widow at 29 years old. And I so desperately wanted to believe that this brand new life could still be beautiful, even though it would be a completely different version of beautiful than it was before. I deeply wanted to believe that beauty is still possible. And so I said on the phone to her, it's as if I'm rebuilding beautiful. And that phrase has just stuck ever since. And so 
if Fear Gone Wild and Rebuilding Beautiful are the only two books to ever write, um, I feel like they're very good bookends for each other. You know, there's hope beyond the destruction. There is hope beyond the tragedy. And no matter what you go through, I deeply believe that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can choose hope. You can look up. You can keep going and you can create a life that's beautiful again. It That is so profound. And I just really want to thank you for sharing that. That, I, if there's anything that we can say to anyone struggling today. I mean, one of the things I knew at at like day three after my husband died, I knew I had to make a very quick decision, you know, and I'm thinking that you probably had a moments and probably repeated moments that the decision was the power move, you know, to say, like, I remember I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta decide either I roll over, show my neck, or, and I destruct because now my, my children have the potential to lose their mother too, emotionally. And there's a, the mama bear in me said, you know what? I have to make the choice to gain more than I lost. Mm. I don't care if it takes me the rest of my life, but you know, like the first scoop of dirt on the ground, I'm like, I'm going to take that little maybe an eighth of a teaspoon, whatever it is each day. And I'm going to put it on the ground right there mm-hmm. and just keep adding. And one day, maybe there'll be a mountain bigger than this. It's hard to believe. But so then I put a journal next to my bed and I decided I was just going to write it. You know, what did I gain today? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious to know, were there moments like that? And I'm sure they're repeated because I, I know like, you know, one day you just feel like you're just under the water and you can, can't even function. I know it, yeah. for me it is anyhow. And then you get up again, right? Mm-hmm. So what is it for you? Yeah, I totally resonate with what you said and agree with what you said. Um, you really do have this decision that you're facing right away in the aftermath, in the shock, in the trauma what are you going to do next? How are you going to respond? And you're on the, on the ground, on your knees with your face on the floor and you're asking God and you're asking yourself, how am I going to respond? And for me, whether I responded or not, our story was all over the news. Our story was all over Instagram, all over the news. And I um, had the opportunity to pick up a microphone and define our story myself and define Andrew's life and the way he lived myself. You know, my greatest fear is that suicide was going to be the definition of Andrew's life. And it was a definition on the headlines, you know, lead pastor, young family, our little family picture uh, tragically kills himself. Like it was these horrific news lines. And so I chose to pick up the microphone and I chose just to decide that Andrew's life would be defined by the way he lived, not just the way he died. And so I began to share publicly, I mean, pretty much right away. Um, I I had posted a picture when we were in the hospital and he was on life support. God gave us the gift of one last day with him, which is such a gift when someone um, dies by suicide or someone attempts suicide. There's not always that gift. They had, they had found him just in time. They were able to get his heart to beat again. So he was rushed to the hospital. He was on life support and we were able to hold him and hug him and lay with him and play his favorite worship songs and cry with him. And most of the time I was just begging God for a miracle, but we were able to have, you know, that time with him. And it was such a gift. So I posted this picture from the hospital room that said, please pray. We need a miracle. Please pray 
please pray. Because I deeply believe that if enough people were praying, he would live. If enough people were begging God for a miracle, there was a prayer vigil at our church. I mean, thousands of people were praying that he would live, that he would wake up, that he would breathe, that his eyes would open. And so I posted this picture. And so that picture kind of went viral. And then our story went viral because he ended up dying and he didn't live. And they were going to tell the church on Sunday. And I'm I'm sleeping at my brother-in-law's house. Our whole family stayed at his house that week. And I'm sleeping at his house. And I hadn't told my kids yet. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, they're going to get on stage. They're going to tell the church what happened, that he took his last breath last night. And what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? What now? And so I decided to, to write. And really my response for the following year, two years, now it's almost been four years, has been to write and to share and to express. And so um, any of these like moments that I've had throughout my grief. I mean, if you go onto my Instagram, my Instagram handle is Kayla Stuck. If you go onto my Instagram and you go back, you can see that very first picture I posted where he was in the hospital and I'm begging God for a miracle. And you can kind of see our journey unfold from there. And writing and sharing has been so therapeutic for me. And I know it's been therapeutic, not only for me, but the way God has used it to literally save people's lives save people's lives from suicide, help people reach out from help. I mean, the way that God has used our story for good has blown me away. And I, uh, right away, you know, I saw that even the little things that I was sharing was having a huge impact. Um, I was dropping my kids off at school just a few weeks after Andrew passed away. And a mom stopped me right outside the school with tears in her eyes and said that her husband had checked himself into rehab last night that she didn't even know he was struggling with suicidal thoughts, that she didn't even know he was struggling with addiction. And he checked himself into rehab because he had read a blog post that I wrote. And then I had people flooding me with emails and direct messages and handwritten notes they were sending to the church that were saying similar things. Like I finally decided to tell my husband how bad my depression really is. I finally decided to call the doctor and tell them I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. I was going to pick up the gun and shoot myself. And I decided to call 911 instead. And so it was just so much bigger than me. I kind of woke up and realized I was part of a bigger story. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, all of us are playing a small part in this bigger story. And the way we choose to respond to tragedy matters. The way we choose to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps matters. The way the things that we write, the things that we share, even if it's just sitting at the skate park and I'm talking to the mom that's there with her kids too. You know, you never know the power of your words. Our words are so powerful. Our stories are so powerful. And all of us have something to share. All of us are a part of this greater story that's happening. And so I was awakened to that um, right away. And I'm just so grateful that God woke me up to that right away. I'm so grateful that I decided to write that book. I'm so grateful that I've decided to share, vulnerably share throughout the journey, these moments of pain and these moments of hope, these glimpses into what life is like as a widow with young children. Um, I am so, so grateful that I chose to pick up the microphone and speak. You know, I'll tell you something that this, the way that you have decided to just be completely authentic, right? And that the truth is, is good enough and that you're just going to be there. You know, that's what it sounds like. You just presented your life, you know, as an offering kind of really is what you did. And 
I'm thinking in my therapist mind, you know, what's going on in my mind is I'm thinking of the power of holding the space for people's pain. So like by you doing that, how would you like describe, I'm thinking that when people hear a a tragedy, right? I know that I even tend to do that. It could be anything, any really horrifying thing. We want to separate ourselves from it so that it doesn't we so we feel safe mm-hmm. and one of the ways we do it is we we have to find a meaning for it and very often it becomes judgment right so it becomes like you know i have to blame the victim or i have to blame someone for this so i can see how i'm different from it and i think what you did is you opened up the door for the similarities you know and and you gave people permission to tell the truth you know, and truth is like the 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 pathway to all freedom. You know, we know Amen. that. Like, you know, truth yeah. sets us free, right? And I just feel like you did you you're doing that. You didn't do it. You're living it. You're living truth. And you know, I mean, God Almighty, you know, that is unbelievable. You're living truth. And um, you know, off camera, I was telling you how God showed me that I need to be more honest about what my education is, and you're doing it right off the bat. Like you're just talking about your tragedy and in the face of shame, it's just, you took out your brave card. I always tell people, you know what? (laughs) Oh God, I just had my victim card out. I better put it away and get the bravery card out. Right. Mm -hmm. But you just start living with that out. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, I admire you so much. So what would you, what do you think is the power? I'm kind of saying what I think, but what do you think the power is in, in you just being vulnerable? and authentic. I think that it's just that, that vulnerability is the power. Um, it's the power of going first of, um, opening the door. You know, when you go first, you're opening the door for somebody else to raise their hand and say me too. Um, when you're going first and saying, Hey, I'm struggling with this, even if it's, you know, if it's, if it's sharing with a friend, Hey, I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. Hey, I'm struggling with depression. I still struggle with both of those things. I don't know if you struggle with them too, but ever since I lost my husband, I didn't struggle before, but ever since I lost my husband, I struggle with suicidal thoughts and I struggle with depression on and off for the last four years. And some days it's overwhelming, overwhelming where I can only lay on the couch and I'm crying and other days it's light. But what I do on those days when it's really hard and it's really heavy and I know that I I need to not be by myself is I pick up the phone and I call a friend and I say, hey, I'm struggling with this today. Hey, I'm not okay. And I think there's just so much power in our vulnerability. Um, there, there's power in saying, hey, I'm struggling. And you know what? When that when our friend has one of those days, when our yep. friend has a really bad day, yep. a really hard day, a really tough moment, when they think they can't do it again, when they think they can't get out of bed again and do it the next day, you know who they're going to call? <laughs> Yeah, they're going to call the friend that's vulnerable with them. They're going to call the friend that's real with them. They're going to call the friend that's honest and truthful and that isn't afraid to share their emotions and isn't afraid to open up their hearts and be vulnerable. I think vulnerability just opens the door for other people to be vulnerable to vulnerability um, helps us take off our mask and look other people in the eye and see who they really are. And it allows them to take off their mask and look you in the eye and tell you who they really are. 
Yes. Um, so I think that's the key to functioning as a human being. I mean, that's the key to having real relationships. That's the key to helping people who are struggling with mental illness is being able to really, truly see each other to really, truly be with each other, to really, truly be in this together. I mean, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. You know, this, this here too, is when you're describing that, I'm thinking of um, just this, this thing that I heard uh, Brene Brown say, she said, she talked about shame. You, You probably heard it. I'm sure you have. Is that shame, if it's put in a Petri dish in the dark, uh, with judgment, uh, those are the ingredients to grow shame. Mm-hmm. And if it's put in a petri dish in the light, and with the person, you know, an empath, but the person who's earned the right to hear your vulnerable parts. And I, I, I think that you and I share in this kind of a mission, like coming from the church. I mean, I, I grew up in the church too. You know, forever in the church. You know. And the more of a leader you become, the more separate you feel and the more you feel like you have to be an authority over things and act right and all of that nonsense. And I feel like what, and in the field of psychology also, like therapists can be so separate that it feels like judgment. What you're doing is you're, you're allowing this freedom for everyone Every single time. And I'm telling you, the first thing that I think of when I feel vulnerable, I'm going to be honest with you. The first thing I just, I don't want to tell people, Mm. you know, because the, the, you know, if you think about the voice that comes, I don't, and you, you said, oh, I don't know if you experienced depression and suicidal thoughts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I, I had one time in my life and it was before all of this, where I had a glimpse I'm telling, I couldn't believe it. And I think God gave it to me. I, I really believe it. I had a glimpse into beyond a thought. It was like a, an overwhelming, like no hope, mm. eclipse of any light. Like I cannot live. I can't, like that felt like the only solution. And in the moment I was in, I believed it. And ironically, the person wow. that I went to was a person who earned the right to hear that. Right. And it was my husband. And I said, CJ, I, I'm, I really feel weird telling you this, but I just, I had a situation with money. And I told him, I said, I just, I know that this situation isn't that big. I knew intellectually it wasn't that big, but I was like, I, re- I really feel like I want to die. And he, and the way he handled it, literally, I'm telling you, it saved my life. Wow. Ironically, he died by suicide. But he, he suffered with that same eclipse, right? Yeah. But what yeah. happened was he said, Allison, I, I understand. And he just, he's like, that, I could, that, that must feel so overwhelming. And he, he didn't try to fix me. He didn't, yeah. he didn't take his discomfort with my pain and try to take it away from himself. Because I think that that's what I... I, we don't want the other, it's more about like me. I don't want you to be feeling that because I can't handle your feelings, you know? And I think that, right. I have, I've made mistakes, boy, you know, cause we, we think they're strong. We think that they can handle it. Right. And we never think it's going to happen. 
I mean, did you, even though it was like tragic and it was scary and you were in the midst of mental illness, did you think it would happen? No, no, I really didn't. I really didn't think it was even possible. I didn't think that he was capable of doing something like that. And what a gift that your husband responded to you that way, because there was a moment I talk about it in the book where my husband tried to tell me, um, tried to tell me that there was an eclipse, tried to tell me that he was struggling uh, with suicidal thoughts. And my response was uh, completely the opposite. It was completely everything you're not supposed to say to somebody that's struggling with suicidal thoughts. And we were sitting at the kitchen counter it was after the kids had gone to bed. Our kids were two, four, and five at the time. So I was exhausted, you know, exhausted mom. It's summer break. They're home all the time. There's no breaks. I'm taking care of my husband that's struggling. I'm sitting at the kitchen counter and I'm venting to him how exhausted I am and how tired I am. And any mom with three young, especially boys, all boys will understand, you know, it's like a really intense season of life. And I'm venting to him. And then his response to me is he's venting to me. And then he says, uh, last night I was up in the middle of the night and I had my staff organization charts. He was the lead pastor of our church. So he had all, he was always trying to figure out how to um, structure the staff to best support him in his role. And he never really quite figured that out. So he was up in the middle of the night. He had his staff organization charts spread all over the counter. And he said he thought about killing himself. And I re reacted. I didn't even respond. I reacted in that moment out of my own fear and my own anger and my own exhaustion and said, Andrew, I can't believe you even said that. Andrew, that is the most selfish thing you could ever do. Like, you don't mean that. You didn't, you know, like, no way. You know, like, I said all the things you shouldn't say. And he literally said back to me, Kayla, you need to do some research. You need to come up with something better to say, because that's not how you respond to someone that shares something like that with you. And he was right. And he never brought it up again. And I think it's because he didn't feel like it was safe to bring it up again. He, he wasn't heard. I didn't hear him in that moment. I didn't see him in that moment. I didn't hear his desperation. I didn't hear his cry for help. I really, truly believed that it would never happen. And I really, truly thought he was just being selfish. I really thought in that moment, he's being selfish. This is ridiculous. Here I am taking care of everything, taking care of him, taking care of the kids. And he's telling me he's going to leave me. I mean, I was so like in my own pain and my own frustration in the moment that I couldn't see him. And um, now looking back, it's like, I wish I would have responded the way your husband responded. I wish I would have been able to walk around the kitchen counter and give him a hug and say, I, I'm with you. And I'm so sorry for your pain. And I hear you. And I see you. I wish I would have picked up the phone and called the suicide hotline and said, hey, my husband said this to me. What do I do? I wish I would have told our therapist, told his psychiatrist, told some family members, told some friends. I didn't say anything to anybody because I didn't take it seriously. I didn't believe it was real. I didn't believe it could ever happen. And it did. And they say, you know, when someone dies by suicide, that typically they do talk about it. Typically, there is um, some kind of conversation where they do admit that they're struggling. And I think oftentimes we miss it. And so for those of you listening, like, don't miss it. Don't miss those moments. If someone is telling you they're thinking about doing something to hurt themselves, it's time to lean in. It's time to take it seriously. It's time to 
a checkout of your own emotions for a minute and lean into how they're feeling and ask them questions. I mean, questions are so powerful. There's so many questions I could have asked him in that moment. I could have asked him if he had ever, how, how far he had thought about it. I could have asked him if he had Googled it. I could have asked him what, what, what problem was he trying to solve? You know, what overwhelming problem did he think suicide was going to solve? There's so many questions I could have asked him and I didn't. And so, you know, looking back, I know that I tried the best that I could have done in that moment with the education that I had and the season of life that I was in. But for you that are listening, if you ever are on the other side of a kitchen counter and having a conversation like that, it is time to lean in. It's time to ask questions. It's time to take it seriously. It's time to fill in other people that are in your circle, other safe people, like you said, that have earned the right to be in your circle. Um, You cannot carry it alone. It is a team thing. Mental illness, suicidal ideation, I would say it's a team effort to care for the person that's sick. And that team is the doctors, it's the therapists, it's the family members, it's the close friends. I mean, all of these people can surround them so that when you are so exhausted that you cannot respond from a place of love, there's somebody else that can. Or you can pick up the phone and say, you know what? Andrew's really struggling today and I'm tired. I've been with the kids all day. We've been outside all day. We've been making mud pies all day and I just need to go to bed, but he needs somebody to sit with him and it can't be me. Um, And if you don't tell anybody else, if you're not able to be vulnerable and aren't able to share how this person is doing with anybody else, then all you do is isolate yourself. All you do is create a bigger problem for yourself. And so you have to share that pain um, because it's pain for you too and it's too much to carry on your own. What you just said about asking, owning the fact that it was too much for you in the moment and reaching out to someone else is incredibly powerful because you're, you're owning the reality of where you are in your life, Kayla. And there is not probably any woman that's listening to this that has young children that, that does not relate to that type of a struggle that you're depleted and the family has too much need to go around. Even if your husband isn't having these suicidal, you know, thoughts or whatever that, you know, just the family has so much need each person, the children and the mom and the dad. And I'm so glad that you said that because what I was picturing when you were speaking, I'm picturing this young mom with these young kids. Cause I, I was there. I, I know what that feels like. And I was picturing, and when I was listening to the book, I was picturing it too. And what I just, when I just realized when you were saying it is that we, we think we should know things we don't after the fact. And it it hit me because I'm, I'm really super nerdy into neuroscience and like, I'm thinking about your neurological network. You don't have a framework at that moment as to that being a reality, but now you do. Now I do, right? We have an understanding, you know, I I own counseling centers. So I have a framework. What's my excuse? (laughs) I don't know if I have one. I'm just kidding. But, um, but anyhow, so the, the concept of, you know, it's like saying, oh, go do a cartwheel. Well, you go back and you look in your, your framework, you don't have it. So what I also want to say to people who, who have experienced suicide too, that the, the, on the other side, it's like, our first thing is we want, we immediately think of everything we could have done. Right. I mean, I know, I I mean, from everything you say, like, Oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. And the, the days my husband just, it's been a year. So 
every day up until the day he he died, I'm like, oh, th- this is the day that I could have done this. This is the day that I could have done that. Why didn't I do this? And what I want to say to anyone who's listening is that we naturally live our lives with all different people every day, with our children every day, and we are making mistakes. I made mistakes with my children this week, but we're not experiencing that outcome. So those things aren't illuminated. As soon as that outcome comes, everything behind it is magnified. But we have to remember, we're, we were living our daily lives with this person. This was a real life with Andrew, right? Mm-hmm. And it, with the normal struggles, yeah. without any knowledge of how to fix something that's outside of the normal struggles, right? Mm-hmm. But I love so much that you just gave someone, you just put in their neurological framework, when you have this experience and you can't do it, you gave them permission to not be the one who, who does the thing. I love that you did that. That I'm, I'm just astounded by that. Cause I was thinking when you're saying, okay, so what does the person do when they just don't have it? Mm-hmm. Cause you know, don't have you felt and I think you have, but we'll see. <laughs> have you felt like anger toward him during these times? Like what is going on? Mm-hmm. You know, when mm-hmm. you're looking at this person, I know for me, I would look at my husband and it wasn't him anymore. Yeah. Glimpses yeah. in and out. Right. I read, yeah. I read that. I heard that in your book. Yeah. Who is he? Yeah. yeah. So much frustration and anger. So yes. much like get it together, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get it. <laughs> together like here we are we have this young family you need to figure it out and get it together like you know and I didn't understand I didn't understand the side effects from the medication the depths of his depression and the depths of his anxiety like I just truly didn't didn't even understand um but I remember feeling so frustrated like here I am bending over backwards to love on everybody and help everybody and take care of myself and take care of him I'm taking care of the kids and I'm bringing lunch he was in our bedroom a lot sleeping and resting and just trying to wrestle with this depression and so I would go back to the bedroom and I'd check in on him and bring him lunch and take care of him and then run back out and check on the kids and you know I was just so stretched so thin in so many ways but yeah, a lot. I would I would walk around my house that summer and whisper under my breath, this is the summer from hell. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It. it was it was hard. It was hard and frustrating. And because he was the lead pastor and a lot of my friends went to the church, I felt like I couldn't tell anybody how hard it really was. His family knew and I tried to tell his family and a couple of our close friends, um, his couple of his close friends knew. But I felt so isolated and so alone. And like, I couldn't truly share how I was feeling with anybody. I really understand that. You know, the, you know, the other, the parallel is like running a counseling center. You know, you're supposed to know what to do or whatever. The concept of keeping things to ourselves, it almost feels like we're protecting them, you know? And what I what I do wonder for you is two things. One is, did you experience judgment from others? That's one. And and do you still feel mad at him? I get mad at my husband now. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel, you know, and um I I know that the thing that killed my husband is the same thing that dropped a bomb in my house. That's really what I'm mad at. 
Mm-hmm. And when I, um, I didn't literally do what I'm about to say, but the the idea because I remember you describing your husband like in a fetal position and crying, and mm-hmm. my husband had told me about that too. I wasn't there when it happened, but he told me about him doing that. You know, he was hiding like behind a chair and crying and so mm-hmm. scared to death, and um, he shared how frightened he was. And I was empathetic about that, but I, I, I think that I, I didn't know, even though I would have known if it was a client, but when it's your person and you, all I saw him was is strong, right? So I think that, have you found that, have you seen judgment or, um, and also the anger thing? Two questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think um, anybody that loses somebody to suicide wrestles with a sea of regret for a long time. I mean, the first three, four, five, six months, it was just like this never ending movie reel that would play in my mind of all the different ways I could have saved him. And one of the biggest things that's helped me um, with the anger, with the regrets, um, with that never ending reel is seeing Andrew's suicide as nobody's fault. It's not my fault. It's not the doctor's fault. It's not the medication's fault. It's not his fault. It's not God's fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's a tragedy and nobody is to blame. I honestly, um, I've described his death as like a child drowning in a swimming pool at a birthday party. They are surrounded by people. Andrew was surrounded by people that loved him. And if any of us knew he was drowning, we would have jumped in the water and saved him. We just had no idea. We had no idea. And so that's been super helpful for me is just to take the blame off of everybody. It's not anybody's fault. This is a horrific tragedy, just like any other horrific tragedy. And nobody is to blame. And then something that... um, The psychiatrist shared with us early on, you know, he was totally shocked and surprised by Andrew's suicide as well. And one of the things he said was that 90% of suicides are impulsive. And for me, you know, a light bulb just kind of went off in my mind of like, okay, this was an in the moment, overwhelming flood of pain, pain that many of us are incapable of understanding unless we've lived it, unless we've had that experience, like you were talking about where the lights go out and death seems like the only option. I've heard it described, another author um, described it as being trapped in a burning building and the only way to escape the flames is to jump out the window. Um, Andrew was trapped in his own pain. He was trapped in his own fear. He was trapped in his own depression and spiritual warfare and all these things that were going on inside his mind. And in that moment, when the suicide happened, he felt like that was the only way out. And so that has really helped me. Um, it's just helped me a lot to take take away that anger and to have compassion, to replace the anger with compassion. And even as I um, share more with my kids, as they get older and they have questions, and now we've talked about suicide, they know what suicide is, and they know that dad did something that caused him to die. They don't know the means of it yet, and they'll find out more as they get older. Um, But age-appropriate information I've been able to share with them, and I've been able to share with them in a way that's compassionate, in a way that, that dad didn't just leave us. You know, that it, that it wasn't the medication's fault. It wasn't the doctor's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Daddy was sick. His brain was sick. And we were doing everything we could to help him. And, and we couldn't. 
and he and it was the illness that took him just like any other illness mental illness depression suicidal ideation as just as powerful and deadly as any other illness and so a lot of that has helped release me um, from my anger and from my regrets you know my son said the day that it happened he said guys we all have to just stop he was 25 he said we all have to just stop and realize that the man that we love so much got sick and died. And I, I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, it, you know, and it's exactly what you're saying. You know, it's a, and it's really, if you think about it, the person that we know, you know, our husbands, we know that they couldn't see us in that moment. It wasn't even possible. They couldn't see themselves. You know, they were, they, I, I do believe that someone else killed him, <laughs> you know, something else yep. killed him. And, um, I, it's, uh, and hurt us too. Right. Cause the people yeah. we know wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I'm with you hundred mm-hmm. percent in that. Yeah. It wasn't, I say that a lot too, is that it wasn't him. No, it wasn't him. And it's also like, I think about when, some, when somebody dies, you know, a drug overdose, like we have a lot of that, you know, that we yeah. see here or whatever. So like, what can happen is that the person gets frozen. It's like in our minds in that time, at that time, Yeah. you know, so uh, they're frozen at that moment. And that's like what you're saying. You don't want, you want them to remember him, how he lived, not how he died. And your, your husband's still living. Well, we know that they go from life to life. We know that he's still alive, but the, the real, th- like he's living because of like, I feel like all of the people he would have touched in the church, you know, we've discussed this, like, like he's touching all like the real broken, mm-hmm. like the really broken. And, you know, when you describe the pool, right. I love that because, you know, how many people would judge the parents by the pool? Yeah. They would. Yeah. Right. And it's like, but the truth is the parents would never let their child die at the pool, right? And um, I think about how many people right now, anybody listening to us, and I know me, I, I do it too, that suffer in silence. Say, all right, I got to pull it together, you know? And how many days can we do that? Can we lie to ourselves and to others? It's incredible. And when anything shared with a person who earns that right, it dissipates it. It's real. We want you to know, like, I know that Kayla wants it. I want you to know that you can reach us, you know, that you can, you can reach out to a suicide hotline. You can, you know, DM me, DM Kayla. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Should I no, not say that no, about you? Can. You? <laughs> you can't. No, you can say that. You could call her per- on her personal <laughs> line if you want. She has a whole team of staff. I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Um, but anyhow. We really want you to know that there is always hope and that the, this moment isn't the only moment that we lived. Anything can happen. You can meet, you can walk out your door and meet one person, have one experience that changes your entire life, that it's completely different and it's not as dark. So Kayla, tell us, tell us from your heart, like how things are now. Mm-hmm. Like 
you were described going back into those dark places. Some, some days I'm like, I, I feel crazy. I'm going to be honest. I'll be in a store and all of a sudden I feel like I'm going to um, have so much anxiety. I, I don't even know where it came from. I'm like, it's, I feels like it's PTSD. Like what? Like, and I don't even know where, what happened, you know, like feel like I'm going to throw up and it's, it, you know, it's hard because you, you're trying to live life, you know, you're trying to raise children so what, what do you do? How do you, how are you recovering? Yeah, I would say the first three years were the hardest, um, that it wasn't until after that third year, uh, anniversary of his death that I really felt like I could come up for air again. And, uh, we're headed towards the four, four year anniversary, um, this summer. And I can honestly say like, we're doing pretty dang good. Like, in 2020, in the fall of 2020, you know, COVID everything changed everything, the great shakeup um, for a lot of families, a lot of people moved and all different kinds of stuff. And so for us, um, my boys were pulled out of school. We were still living in the city that my husband had passed away in, in the surrounding cities right there. I couldn't even go to Trader Joe's without passing the physical cemetery where he was buried. And so for me, you know, I would, I would even, I would bump into families at drop off and pick up. My boys were going to a little private Christian school and a lot of the families went to our church and I would hear about the new pastor. And for me, it felt like um, not only was I passing the cemetery often, it felt like I was living in a cemetery. It felt like I couldn't start over there. It felt like I couldn't rebuild a life there. I felt like I was being suffocated by my pain. And everywhere I went, I was surrounded by death. I was surrounded by the reminder of his passing. I would pass the place we went on date night. I would pass the church. I would bump into somebody. You know, I was like, I need to get out of here. If I want to move forward with our life, I can't do it here. And that's not true for everybody. um, But for me, that's what I needed to do. And so my boys were already pulled out of school because of COVID. We were driving down to the beach a ton because of COVID. It was the only place that was open. (laughs) All the parks were closed. Everything was closed. We lived about an hour from the beach at the time. And so, um, and I had always felt this tug to move um, closer to the ocean that I don't know for a lot of people that have experienced loss, it's like just being outside and being in nature um, and even sitting on the sand and just staring out at the ocean and seeing something that's so much bigger than me has been so healing uh, for my grief journey. And so I would often just drive down to the beach when I had a moment to myself and just sit. And so I'd felt this tug to move closer to the ocean since Andrew passed away. You know, and I thought, you know what? Everything's already out of order. Everything's already out of whack. The boys are already out of school. If we're going to do it, now's the time to do it. And I was terrified. I mean, petrified, so terrified to pull my boys out of a private Christian school that they love, to take them away from their friends, to take myself away from family that was super close by. My dad was just a few streets up the street. And um, I was terrified. And I decided that if I didn't do it, then I would spend the rest of my life wondering what if I had. And so that was enough for enough motivation for me to say, you know what, this is the time to do it. And so we did, we took the leap. Uh, We moved, thankfully, to my best friends live in the city that I moved to. And so I had a built in community right away. And my boys are thriving. I mean, they're thriving. They're going to the public school down the street. We can ride bikes to school. We can walk to the ocean. They've made a bunch of friends. I've made a bunch of friends. And what I did by moving 
was I gave all of us back uh, the power of our story that we get to tell the story on our own terms. We get to share what happened on our own terms. Our story is not going to be told for us. Most people that we bump into, most families that my friends, you know, make my friends, that my kids make friends with at school, they have no idea about Inland Hills Church or Andrew Steckline or anything that's ever happened to us. Where we lived before, a lot of the families went to the church. And so it would have been something that followed my children growing up. It would have, I felt like it would have been this dark cloud that followed them growing up. And so by moving, I gave all of us back the power of our story and they could share their story on their own terms, on their own timeline. And I can share my story on my own terms, on my own timeline. I don't have to tell anybody unless they ask me and I want to share with them, you know, about our story and what's happened to us and how we wound up where we are. Um, but it has been such a gift. It has been such a gift to be closer to the ocean. It's been such a gift to be closer to two of my best friends. It's been such a gift to start over, um, to start fresh in a city where there's no memories. My husband and I had never spent time here. And so it really is just like this fresh, I'm not bumping into my grief. If I want to go to the cemetery, I have to drive an hour to go. I'm not passing it on the way to the grocery store. I'm not passing the places where we went on date night as I'm driving through town. I'm not bumping into the families that used to go to our church at drop off and pick up. Um, it has been such a massive gift that I didn't even really fully understand when I was packing up the boxes and we were about to move. Um, but we are thriving. My boys are thriving. They're happy. They're so happy and um, doing so well. And they will grieve the loss of their father for the rest of their life. And I describe their grief as like a slow dripping faucet. You know, it's slowly going to drip in over time. They're slowly going to understand um, the totality of what happened and the story over time. Um, but they are doing so well. I feel like I can breathe again. I don't feel like I'm living in a cemetery anymore. So yeah, we're doing, we're doing really, really well. And I'm just so grateful for all the open doors um, and God's timing in it all too. Even with buying our house down here, like there's, I couldn't afford it now. The market's gone crazy. You know, even <laughs> the timing of that, like I bought it right before all the housing market went nuts. And so just so grateful. And we're, we're in this little house by the sea and it's just such a gift. There's so many things that you just shared that I resonate so much with the draw to nature. As soon as my husband died, I was, I was in the yard. I needed to be with like trees and plants yeah. and flowers. And I think that's, there's something to that. Now that you said it, I see it. And I feel the desire to live somewhere that's more, has more of nature around me, which is so interesting. I just wanted to point that out. And I was thinking about what you just said about your children and uh, that they'll have grief, you know, their whole life. But then I was thinking about them growing up as men. I also have three boys and I'm thinking that this is like interwoven in their life's development, their story. But the, the beauty is the demonstration. They have built into them the compassion, built into them the depth of resolving tragedy by watching you. That it's been, it's been woven into their lives their development, as hard as that is, to watch your mother through so much struggle and difficulty, and then the triumph, you know, tragedy to triumph, tragedy to triumph, like, think about the muscles that you are building in them. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 
And it's, you know, very often, like we think, you know, I always want this perfect Christian home, like everything to be just so, and none of that is real. And I feel like when that happens, when it's that illusion of perfection is there, the depth of love and connection and all of that is lost because sometimes kids don't do not ha- are not they're not able to understand pain and and love the real love I, and I'm not criticizing anyone at all God <laughs> no haters please but uh <laughs> just no <laughs> but I just you're a beautiful beautiful soul and what you've given me and you're continuing to give me is the boldness you know, it's very hard for me to share my story out loud because as soon as I start to say it, I cry. And I never know when it's going to happen. Like right now, I didn't think it would happen and it does. So I, and so I think what you've done is you tell this story through your tears. Like you do the thing through your tears. And that, you know, that's, that's very brave. And I love that about you. And, you know, and, and, I believe in being honest about suicide, but I think that I've held my, you know, my, well, maybe whatever it is, my, my image close to my chest, you know? So, because, because it feels like a wreck inside sometimes, you know? And when you're like, and oh, I just want to say one other thing about you being a pastor's wife, girl, we have to just do this for a second and that, you know, but the thing about that now Life is on display. You know, when you're a leader in the church, I was a leader in my church, whatever. Yeah. And like people are watching you, right? And I'm thinking about being in that neighborhood. And the way you said others telling your story, it's incredible. Was it this is this I want to say to people who are grieving now. When we see someone, I'm wondering how you feel about this. Let's say you run into someone. And they have a perspective on you. Oh, poor Kayla, poor Allison. It almost feels as if for me that either I have to be sad, I have to demonstrate something that they expect from me. And I think also a lot of people don't know how to interact with someone who's had a tragic loss, so they won't. You know, I've experienced, you know, people will just, they just leave. Because, you know, and I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but they're just gone. (laughs) It's okay. But I just think it's just too much. Like, how do I handle her pain? Have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think oftentimes for a lot of people that have a massive loss like that, it's super loud at the beginning. And it's like when you're, it's too much because you're already overwhelmed and shocked and you're overwhelmed with pain and all of it's super overwhelming. And then you're also overwhelmed with people (laughs) checking in and calling and texting and dropping off the casseroles and doing all the things. And it's like slowly over time, the people do, they go and they don't know how to stay with you. They don't know how to stay with the pain. Um, They're not in it for the long run. And definitely I've had those people and it is shocking and hurtful, you know, at times too, when the people you thought were going to be with you aren't. When it's four years later and you look around you and the people that you thought were in it for the long run aren't. Yeah. Um, But I am, I do have friends that are, I do have friends that'll still, you know, just last week um, was my husband's birthday on May 19th um, was his, he would have been 34 on May 19th. 
and um, had a few of my friends call me a few days before and, and check in and say, how are you feeling about Thursday? How are you feeling? They remembered. They remembered. I didn't, they didn't, I didn't even tell them that his birthday was coming up. They just remembered on their own. And how are you going to celebrate? And what can we do? You know, how can we support you? And just so, so grateful that people still remember. And so, so grateful that um, people can see me not only as the victim, like you said, it's like the people can look at you and see like, oh my gosh, that horrible thing happened to her and poor Allison or poor Kayla. It's like, not only do they have that perspective of, yes, this horrific thing happened to me, but they don't just see me as a victim. They see me as a human being, (laughs) you know, and they're able to see how I've overcome, you know, the beauty of staying with somebody through all the seasons of loss, you know, they lost and then they're rebuilding their life. The beauty of staying with somebody as they rebuild their life is that you get a front row seat. You get a front row seat to the, to watching them persevere to you get a front row seat to courage you get a front row seat to bravery you get a front row seat to honestly just like sit back and be absolutely blown away that this horrific thing could happen yet here they are yeah. they're still standing they're still moving they're still choosing to get out of bed every morning And to be the friend that's willing to show up and knock on the front door um, when they know that it's been a hard week or it's been a hard day or that that four-year anniversary is coming up or that hard birthday is coming up, to be the friend that still checks in four years, five years, six years, seven years, 10 years later, those friends to me have been such a gift. Um, So I would just encourage anybody that's listening that don't forget you know, don't forget that person. Talk about that person um, that they lost. You know, my friends still talk about Andrew. They'll make jokes about Andrew. Uh-huh. They'll make comments about Andrew. Um, and it's so healing for me and for my kids to hear their dad's name and hear stories about my about their dad and to know that he's not forgotten. Um, to know that my pain's not forgotten and to know that Andrew's not forgotten has been such a gift. Thank you. That's really um, very true. And I think that a tragedy like this, it kind of um, gives like um, an audit, like it raises our friend group list, (laughs) you know, it it clears out um, or it brings in, you know, who's going to be there. And I've experienced that too. Incredible. Like my husband's, the, the anniversary of his death was about a month ago. And I could not believe the people who reached out. And it was mostly all the people that um, work with me. And they were the ones who were there, like just so loving, just incredible. And um, there's something, there's someone I kind of want to just shout out to on this podcast too. I I just thought of it is that uh, Ed Milet is the one that introduced you and I. And um, I think that what I just want to show appreciation for that because he didn't, he didn't have to do that. And he is so busy and successful and he just does so much for so many people, including me, you know, and, um, he saw me, you know, I asked a question, him and also Andy Frisella, I was at an event and he saw me and he went out of his way to make sure that we met. And I, I think that it's because he he felt and saw both of our our pain and and triumph and i just really just want to honor him for that 
So, you know, just if you can ever do anything like that, we always know someone else who could help someone, you know, or just holding space and and not, not judging. And even just when someone's having a hard time, people don't know what to do. We can just say, just imagine that, wow, that must really be difficult for you. Mm-hmm. You know, like what my husband said, but the other thing he always did, he would pull my head in, he would stroke the top of my hair and he would say, I know it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And your husband would say, God's got this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I believed him when he would say that, mm-hmm. you know, I understand. And I don't know how there's always a solution. We may not have found it yet, but there mm-hmm. is always a solution. And, th- and that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to have, you don't have to have all the perfect things to say. I think so often what drives people away is that they don't know what to say yeah. and they, and they want to have something to say. They want to show up and say the right thing and say the encouraging thing. And they don't know what to say. So they decide to go away. They decide to not say anything at all. And it's like so often in our grief and in our pain, all we need is the person to hold us and to stroke our hair and to say it's going to be okay. Yeah. I ha- I'll never forget uh, one of my friends, the the one friend that still checks in, that lives close by, that remembers all the hard days. It was just a few weeks after he passed away and I had just got done putting the kids to bed and I came out to the living room. We had these little steps that went down to where the couch was in the little den. And I just collapsed on the steps. I mean, I just fell to the floor and collapsed and I was weeping. And she walked over to me and she laid on top of me and held me and just wept with me. She didn't say anything. She didn't, she didn't try to fix it. She just held me in my pain. And it was the most beautiful gift she could have ever given me in that moment. That's all I needed in that moment was to know that I wasn't alone. So I think the biggest gift we can give people is our presence. The biggest gift um, that we can give people is just the gift of being with them and being with them without an agenda. I think the agenda makes us feel safe. It makes us feel comfortable. Um, but all we have to do is show up. No, um, I feel like I could just like never end this podcast because now I have to say another story. <laughs> That because who knows, maybe someone needs to hear this, but when you just describe that friend, I'm sure that that bond is forever now. It's like she, that peek into your agony and her sharing it with you is, I'm going to say this and then I'll stop. But the day after my husband uh, died, my daughter had a play that she was a lead in. And, um, she was screaming, horror, like guttural screams at 10 o'clock at night. All day, she gets up. All of us are hot, like in agony. She said, can someone give me a ride to school? We're like, what? She's like, I'm going to do my show. We're like, what? So then we all knew we had to go because we can't leave her. So she, but then after that, they, I couldn't drive or anything. So my kids had my keys or whatever. They were older. And so I couldn't find my keys. And for some reason in that moment, for like a half an hour, I was alone in my house. And I don't know how, no one ever left me alone, but I was alone in my house and I couldn't find my keys. And it was symbolic. And I just was like, where, where are my keys? Where are my keys? Where am I? Like I was by myself. And I just started screaming 
cry. I, I'm going to, this was the hardest moment of my life. And I'm sobbing on the floor, like, where are my keys? And I'm calling my son. I'm like, I can't find my keys. And they're like panicking. And it's weird. The person who came, my son was with my daughter because he wanted to be there with her. He drove her. I was going to come after. So the boys were not leaving any of the girls alone, even in their own pain. Such great young men, amazing guys. But my other son had my keys. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) And my daughter-in-law, who was with my son, she wasn't yet my daughter-in-law, was like, I'll go. And she came to the house. And I was that just what I could, I was in the darkest moment and God chose her. Why? None of my kids, whatever her. And she sat silent with me in the agony. And from that moment, she became like my person. Like I will, she means more to me than most people in my life because to share, I did. I never even went in that dark place in my, ever in my life. So it was new to me, and she went there with me, and um, that just it sealed it. Yeah. I would just never be, you know, our relationship. I could cuddle on a cat. She's like my child. I don't know what she is. My mother. I don't know what the <laughs> hell she is. She's something big. But anyhow, so how do I never know? I what? Tell me what you're feeling, love. Mm. Now I'm just in those emotions with you and in those moments and in those memories with you. It's like, as we share these stories, you're taken back to those moments and um, just so grateful for the people that have chosen to show up. Yeah. Yeah. It brings tears to my eyes to hear you talk about it. And it brings tears to my eyes to remember um, that moment too. It's like, and, and to see, you know, how far, how far I've come and how far God's brought me on this journey and, and just so grateful for the people that he brings to walk alongside us. Um, and yeah. And you know what you are, you're the four minute mile girl. You know what that means? You're the one you, you know, you're doing it, you know, and the people, the, the, the people who today have lost someone they can see that you know i'm a year in you're 4 years in but we can we can we can overcome we can yeah. we can triumph right yeah. and um and we'll continue to you just all you have to do is decide a minute at a time and you don't have to do it perfectly and you could yeah. throw up on the ground and you can be in cvs and feel like you're going to like the whole world is looking at you and you're going to have a panic attack and you could <laughs> still do it you could mm-hmm. still cry and hate how busy your life is without them and have to figure yeah. it out and do it messy, right? Yeah, it's all of it. Yes. It's all of it. It's horrible and terrible and beautiful and wonderful all at the same time. Yes, it is. So I guess I, I will have to land this plane because we can't spend our lives <laughs> together, Kayla, except I'd like to cuddle on a couch with you. <laughs> I just I just love knowing you now. And I just want to thank you for sharing your life, you know, with everyone and with us here today. And I'm going to do my best over here on the East Coast to um, follow your lead and to continue to just be honest. And I'll never I'll never lie about suicide. God, I want to say one more thing and then I'm hanging up. I promise. Just one more thing. 
the thing about evil, you know, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And I feel like, you know, our tendency, I know that, and I'm just saying this out loud, I'm telling on myself, is that suicide, um, domestic violence, um, child abuse, all of those things, uh, the people who are victims of those things want to hide them. And I think that that's evil's way of keeping it alive. So the way that, you know, I'm, even if I just take it outside of suicide and I'm not, I'm not changing the subject. I just want to make it so you could see it differently that when a child is abused, the way that it can maintain, the way that the perpetrator can maintain its abuse, the way that it works is through secrecy and shame. So sh anything that's dark or evil will tell the victim that it's their fault and that it's uh, something to keep a secret because you're a part of it. And I think suicide comes right along with that because I think evil doesn't change its tune with anything. So I do think that suicide is comes from an evil spot. And I, I don't know if you think I'm crazy. I don't, I really, I don't even think I care because I think it's true. And I domestic violence too. How come the people who are the ones who are experiencing the tragedy are the ones who feel guilty about it? They absorb the shame of that evil act, whatever that is. Now, I'm not saying the person who, who, who died by suicide is the evil one. I'm not. I'm saying the, the eclipse that went over their mind, that they were no longer them in that moment, that killed them. That's the evil. And it, when we contribute to that shame and we, don't, we keep it a secret, oh, don't tell anyone. No. Because if we want to change the world, and that's what I said in the beginning, that this podcast, not this podcast, but what we're talking about can has the opportunity, if you, if you change your mind, to change the world. And it can change the way we see these dark things. So I'm asking you guys to see it. And also notice that don't, don't allow yourself to judge because you're afraid or when you see someone who's in a state of shame because of what someone else did or something else did to them and they're absorbing it, you want to help them separate the shame from themselves. And that's one of the things with suicide that we do here. I mean, every person who's, who's suicidal, we say, is it, do, do you actually want your, do you want your body to die or do you want your pain to end? And we help them separate the pain from their body, you know, like that they're two different things. Now, now let's look at the pain, right? So it's the same kind of thing. And I could talk forever and maybe I'll just make a podcast rambling about this, but I just, so I'm going to end the show and please, uh, Kayla, how do, how do people get in touch with you? We're going to put it in this, the show notes and everything, but mm -hmm. how would they reach you? What do you want them to know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, KaylaStuckline.com is kind of a landing page that I have. And then Instagram is where I'm the most active in my Instagram handle is Kayla Steck. And I want to ask you guys to do me a favor. Uh, would you please pre-order uh, Kayla's book, uh, Rebuilding Beauty? How do we do that? Is it Amazon? It's on, it's on Amazon. Yeah. I'm lit. I'm asking everybody like right now, you know, when you shut off this uh, podcast that you would just go and order her book and I, I'm going to, I'm in all the notes, everything. I'm just going to ask everybody everywhere I can to ask to, to pre-order your book. Right. I'm going to do it as soon as I get off. Maybe, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a bunch of them <laughs> for the people who, you know, come in here. 
I'm going to do that because yeah, for the counseling center. Yeah, I'm going to do that. So I just want you, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing this beautiful tragedy with me. I love you. I do. I love you now. This has been such a gift to me too. Thank you. Thank you, love. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. I just want to say to you that we are all together a part of the mission, Mission Awake, a mission that's going to stop the mediocrity that's plaguing all of us. So if you got something here today, I ask that you would be a part of this mission and you'd share it with whoever you can. Take a screenshot of the show and share it on your Instagram. If you are looking for me, you can find me on social media platform, Instagram, Allison Answers or Logger Counseling Services. And give us a, a review and subscribe, if you could, to YouTube. Allison Answers. That's where you're going to get a lot of content. I drop stuff every day, goofy stuff, all different kinds of stuff. Five-minute videos that just get you moving in your day. Have a great week. See you next time.